0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is January 9, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is an honour to be joined in dialogue by participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. So having finished six episodes on the Republic before the holiday break, today we will explore the first part of Philibus, up to Stephanus Reference 34c. Here we will find several themes that connect Philibus to the Republic, including the distinction between unlimited being and the limits of becoming, the good, and the nature of the soul. In our next meeting in two weeks, we will begin to look at Plato's Phaedo. As always, to focus our discussion, I have suggested three themes, which are posted on the shared drive, linked to the event notice on meetup.com. I'll invite participants to exchange their thoughts on today's reading, and as they do so, I will briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. To contribute your thoughts, please use the Raise Hands feature in Zoom. Using the first name from your screen profile, I will call on you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Café, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today's reading of Philippus begins with a discussion between Socrates and Protarchus on the question of whether all human souls find happiness and the good in a state of pleasure or in a state of knowledge. Protarchus argues for pleasure, while, not surprisingly, Socrates advocates for knowledge. Although they observed that while pleasure and knowledge are each one thing, both both manifest in many ways, good and bad. After they put the life of pleasure and the life of knowledge on trial, Socrates concludes that the best life arises in a mixture of both pleasure and knowledge. The challenge is then to find the appropriate ratio of each in the combination of the two. The problem is particularly daunting because the pleasure component has no limits of either good or evil, well, the knowledge part of the mixture is necessarily limited, and because everything has a cause, which could be either pleasure or knowledge or both. So in sorting out the mixing of unlimited and limited, we see the number, the knowledge of number and calculation put into practice in Philibus. Recall that Socrates said in the Republic that number and calculation are a philosopher's first order of knowledge because they allow the application of reason. It is with our faculty of reason that we receive empirical data from the five physical senses and combine these inputs into meaning based on first principles. In seeking the first principle from among the many particulars of either a limited or unlimited thing, Socrates cautions Protarchus. He warns not to look to the thing's greatest extent for the first principle, because greatest is a certainty that applies only when there is a limit. But when we are dealing with the unlimited, there is no absolute greatest. And so instead we must look for more and less and other terms of relativity and ratio. Then we can find among the uncertainties, the one common denominator or form of the thing's many characteristics, but only if we know, quote, the exact number of every plurality that lies between the unlimited and the one, says Socrates. Socrates emphasizes the importance of understanding the order of empirical data to know their position in sequences of events and patterns, so that we can apply a rational approach to derive meaning. The key to determine order correctly, he says, is to appreciate the intermediates that exist between the unlimited and the limited. We'll conclude today's reading with the different and necessary roles that both memory and recollection play in our ability to reason on the basis of the order of things. So let's start today's discussion by considering the relevance, if any, of the difference between the one and the many, or the same and the different, to our lives now in 2022. Socrates provides a few examples of the logic that may still resonate, but I'll put the question out to the group first. In your daily living, is distinguishing between the one and the many important, and why or why not? And so I'll put that question out there uh, for anyone who would like to take that up. Uh, there's some examples that I think, as I mentioned, that Socrates provides, but can we think of any modern, contemporary, relevant examples in our daily lives where the difference between uh, the one and the many or the same and the different uh, is of special importance? Is there anyone who wants to take that one on? There's a particular, let me just do a screen share here. There's a particular thing that I picked out from recent news. And this is from this is on the cover sheet of the uh, the notes for today's session, which are on the shared drive. So on the cover sheet, I put a article from Quanta magazine, this is back from June 2021. And the headline says, same or different? The question flummoxes neural networks. And it's an interesting point that, you know, with with the artificial intelligence and the way that we're training artificial intelligence with data, we're just feeding in as much data that we can and try to create these connections between data in what are called these conv- convolutional neural networks, CNNs. And as we're trying to feed in that data, we're trying to tell these, these the artificial intelligence what's the same and what's different. But it's a very difficult thing to program that because you have to think of all sorts of permutations and combinations. Uh, Under certain certain circumstances, something might be the same as something else. Under other circumstances, it might be different. I really like the way this article started or starts. uh, The writer says the first episode of Sesame Street in 1969 included a segment called. One of these things is not like the other. And I remember this very well, you know, when I was a a child and watching Sesame Street, I actually remember the little jingle that goes with that. Uh, And it's something that I think humans do particularly well is finding patterns uh, in things. And so uh, this idea of, you know, identifying same and different is particularly important to the development of artificial intelligence now. And in fact, I was attending a um, uh, meetup session yesterday on quantum computing, which as uh, followers of this podcast will know is a particular interest of mine. And uh, this particular presentation yesterday was on the development of, I think it's called compilers, where they they take uh, software code and there's a software routine that allows the code to be built out without you know humans writing line by line by line. Because with quantum computing, especially when you start to get uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of qubits, which are the, the the bits in which information is translated or transmitted in quantum computers, um, it would take forever for a human to write line by line by line. So they have software routines that take, you know, the basic principles that humans input, and then these software routines build out the the many many lines <laughs> that are revol- involved in the algorithms. And you know, that's another case I think of, you know, the application of same and different in uh, in the development of artificial intelligence, particularly as we're about to enter the the, the era of quantum computing and the vast power and the huge expanse uh, and effect that that will have on us, um, so I thought this was of particular interest. And uh, so, Ron, I see your hand is up. Any uh, any thoughts on this?
1: Yes, um, I, this may take the the, the uh, discussion in a direction a different direction. But I'm always uh, very much concerned with uh, what's practical. And um, I think that uh, you ask uh, about uh, uh, practical um, applications. And um, it seems to me that one of the biggest problems today is the, um, this sort of um, bifurcation of society, uh, of choosing between uh, this group or that group. And um, and all the differences that are highlighted, um, and I think that the alternative uh, path that one could consider practically is to uh, look for uh, what we have, what we all have in common. And I would suggest that at the very you know top of that list of what we all have in common is that every, every human being is conscious. And if we were to start there, I think our, uh, all of our human relationships would take a uh, paradigmatic uh, shift. Uh, and uh, we would begin to realize that at, at the ultimate truth, at the one, uh, there are no differences. That we're, It's the same consciousness. So I I just offer that up as a a theme if anybody uh, feels that it it's worthy of you know further discussion. But I I I try to keep it um, uh, be, somewhere between the theoretical but always grounded in the practical. How does you know how, what, is, what does that mean in my in my life? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you. That's a, that's a good and very powerful point, I think, that we can explore. And I, I like the use of the word common there, because I think it's um, it's something that really resonates in this particular dialogue, is that we're looking for the common factors, the common elements of things. And instead of looking for the differences, and there's so many differences, but how do we boil it down to the one common thing? So instead of maybe looking for the maximum number of differences, we need to look for the minimum thing, which is the common thing that ties us all together. So I think it's a very powerful point. So thank you for that. Um, And JK?
2: Yeah, we're talking about, um, you know, a consciousness, a human consciousness that uh, involves, um, you know, uh, sensation, pleasure, and and reason, right? Mm -hmm. And intelligence. So how's uh, how do you build a computer? How do you uh, you know program a computer with this combination of you know uh, the experience, the pleasure that we have in life, with the notion of this kind of uh, reason and intelligence? I mean, um, because a computer, I would assume, is only in terms of in terms of some kind of intelligible. Um, program of reasoning right it's like a uh, it's very purely mathematical you know but it seems like uh, you know in terms of human uh, human experience human uh, uh, consciousness involves a combination of intelligence and sensation and pleasure how do you um, you know Uh, How 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 can that be transferred into a into a computer program?
3: It's an
0: excellent question. I think it's uh, certainly one that you know. As I reflect on um, Phaedrus, which is a dialogue that we did last season, you know, this idea of translation and the difficulties that arise in translation. So the programmers of these algorithms are going to have to translate the idea of pleasure. Uh, into the machine and into their algorithms and everybody's idea of pleasure is different from everybody else's. And so, you know, as you say, how was a computer going to recognize what is pleasure? Because, you know, as you pointed out, and as the conclusion of this, today's dialogue is that, you know, the best life is a mixture of both pleasure and knowledge. Uh, It's neither one or the other. And we've got a good reading today that will show, um, you know, the, 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 deficiencies of either one of those lives on their own. So the conclusion seems to be, you know, as we'll see today that the mixture of pleasure and knowledge is the best, but then we're just training these algorithms, I think on knowledge, and then we're allowing the programmers to translate their idea of pleasure into the algorithms. And I think that's uh, a very relevant point to today's world.
3: Um, JK further?
2: Yeah, I think that uh it it's, it seems like uh, the um the pleasurable part of one's uh, human experience is this uh the structure of care, right? I mean some you know um <clears throat> some philosophers have said that uh, you know we have this structure of care um you know um but care is a very complicated uh, maybe uh, human experience uh, related to more to pleasure uh than uh, than some kind of mathematical you know uh, <clears throat> uh, pro you know computer pro program so um, yeah it'd be interesting if if uh, ultimately you know uh, we can build computers that can um can have this kind of this structure of care uh, as well as you know um, that is related more to pleasure perhaps a pleasure experience. Of, uh, of of human reaction or human experience,
0: yeah. Yeah, care is certainly a good way of putting it, and you know maybe that could be extended to love. Uh, you know, and is there any sort of you know, mathematical uh, ex- expression for something like love? You know, and, and care, uh, and then you know, the, this dialogue today makes the point that you know we can also derive pleasure from others pain, you know, which is, you know, this kind of paradoxical thing, you know, we, I think we saw that in one part of the Republic, you know, when they're talking about, you know, looking at, looking at this, you know, disaster scene and other people being tortured, and somehow there's this kind of strange pleasure in it. And, you know, would computers ever understand that sort of idea? Um, Ron, your thoughts?
1: Thank you. Uh, I'll try to be as brief as I can. Um, uh, consciousness, which I said is the common or unifying factor, um, anybody can define consciousness any way they like. So I'll just, uh, my, my uh, simple practical definition of consciousness is, is if, if you close your eyes, or you don't even need to close your eyes, everybody is aware of their own existence. And I, I've never met anybody who, who, who has, you know, uh, asserted to me, no, I don't exist it's it's ridiculous okay now uh, my personal opinion here is that a machine or a uh some kind of uh algorithms or, or anything like that simply does not have that consciousness that sense of awareness uh, artificial intelligence uh, and and that and that sense of awareness i would call uh the one to bring it to this discussion, uh, the many are all the thoughts and feelings that arise in consciousness, which are myriad and many, and those may all be uh, data points and algorithms and uh, computers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But my feeling is that the one, the consciousness, is um, something that. Uh, is only in in uh living beings and at, at least uh from my practical experience uh human beings uh and to talk about uh a uh, a machine ever being conscious is almost a uh, a linguistic uh, um, oxymoron
2: and yeah finish there
0: and my and- well, th- thank you, and th- and that's a it's a fascinating point that you raise. You know this idea of consciousness, which I think is is something that we're going to have to really get into. Uh, you know, either today or as we go on, because it's certainly something that pertains to the idea of the soul, which you know permeates almost all of Plato's dialogues, uh, and certainly is present here. You know, in this idea of understanding yourself. Um, and, you know, the difference between yourself and the and the others. Uh, and then that, that does relate, I think, as you said, to the idea of the one and the many. Uh, and so, you know, it's this, I, I think if I could distill your idea down, it's this idea of self-awareness versus awareness of others. Um, so, yeah, I mean, thank you for that. That's That's a, a good point and something that we should definitely consider today. And as we go further, we'll go to Jose.
4: Yeah, just a quick comment on what Ron was saying. Um, it, it seems difficult to create uh, consciousness in a, in a robot. But how about the other way around? How about you move my consciousness onto a robot so then I can run faster as when I was 18. I can swim faster as when I was younger. I don't have any joint pains, but I'm aware. I'm conscious. I'm still around. Anyway, I thought it just occurred to me it doesn't have to go all the way to creating consciousness. Why don't you just move my consciousness to um, to a more automated
3: uh, um, entity? That's all.
0: Well, thanks, and, and certainly, I think there is a, uh, a movement to develop that sort of um, that sort of capacity. You know, to 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 expand the human existence, to you know, provide it with that kind of fast computational ability uh, but then i think you know obviously the question is to make sure that that isn't layered over with other problems at the same time so but i know there's there's people working on it i, I think uh you know i think there's there's some very prominent uh, people working on that right now so it's a good point to raise um jk
2: yeah i just wanted to um you know elaborate or maybe extend this uh this question of con- consciousness if uh you know um perhaps you know consciousness is merely the um the relational um you know um characteristic of of the of the uh of the thing the one individual with the uh with the other with the uh, uh with the world right and so you could say that uh consciousness is merely this kind of relational you know um capacity you know and so if you build computers that have this kind of uh interaction with the world then it could be a, a sort of con- consciousness and and that uh because you know you can think of the uh every aspect of the um you know of of the world things in the world uh have this kind of relationship with uh with its uh with the things uh, around it, you know, with, uh, even a rock is, uh, is a thing that has a, has a, uh, uh, is this kind of interaction, right? Because if it's on an incline, it will roll down the hill. Right. And, uh, and uh, so it can be affected by, by the elements in the, in the, uh, in the world. And so if there's always this kind of interaction and, uh, and so we get the organic, uh, Beings, there is more of this kind of interaction, that uh, that interdependency or or dependency on the on the world, and so I think a computer is something like that, and uh, so the pro, uh, computer program could be one that uh, <clears throat> is built on the, this kind of complex relationship with the um, you know with uh, the other with the outside, and, and kind of interaction with the, with the world. And that you could define consciousness in that that way.
0: I really like the way you use that word relational capacity, because I think that ties very much to, to today's dialogue, especially when it comes to the unlimited. So we've got this idea in Plato that um, there are things that have limits and there are things that don't have limits. And in the Republic, we saw the realm of being, which is... Uh, the the past and the future constitute the realm of the being that is without limit. Uh, but what is limited is the realm of becoming or the state of becoming, which is in the present, and that's full of limits. And so, this relational capacity that you talked about, I think, is critical uh, when we're talking about the unlimited. Um, and that's and there's specific words in today's reading. That deal with that, that we'll get to that. Uh, this is this ability to establish this relation between things. And I think that maybe ties to what Ron was saying too. you know, this this idea of awareness of self and your relation of yourself to others. Um, and I think that's, that's a pretty key point. And I think it actually, I want to actually show this picture here that I've got at the end of the slide. So this, this is a little problem with relations. Uh, that arises in artificial intelligence and this is this is um what happened in with google in two thousand and fifteen so artificial artificial intelligence is categorizing things and it was trained with data sets like thousands and thousands well millions of data points to recognize things in pictures so pictures were fed into this google engine using whatever algorithms they use they they didn't disclose what what the basis of the algorithms were. But uh, in 2015, the, there's six pictures here on the screen, for those who can't see. There's six pictures, and, and five of them are correctly identified or correctly categorized by the artificial intelligence. There's an image of skyscrapers, an image of an airplane, picture of cars, bikes, and a graduation scene. And the computer identified or categorized all of those correctly. What it did not categorize correctly is the picture of the two black people, which it applied the word gorillas. And this was a very uh, embarrassing thing for Google back in 2015. And I think they actually, for a period of time, they actually stopped the ability of people to search on the word gorillas because they had to fix their algorithm. Uh, But I think this is a problem in terms of what you were just speaking about, JK, this, this idea that um, you know when we establish these relations, you know the computer doesn't always get it right because it's programmed based on the parameters that we set in it we and we can't We can't anticipate all of these different combinations and permutations there's just infinite numbers of them and how can we anticipate this? So the computer made this horrible problem of labeling two black people as gorillas uh, and so I think you know they've presumably fixed their algorithms now, but this is the problem. I think this is a really good illustration of the problem of the one and the many understanding the difference. And so if we say gorilla is one category, how do we pick out the many types of gorillas? And how do we get that categorization correct? And I think that's a very relevant thing to this question of the one and the many are the same and the difference that we'll start today with. Uh, So I just wanted to show that image because I think it was a really powerful Illustration of the problem, uh, and and of the ability of humans, our ability to recognize patterns and to categorize things is still unparalleled. Uh, still unparalleled. As powerful as the computers are, our ability to recognize patterns is still unparalleled, and that's what that article you know that I, I showed on the screen uh, from Quantum Magazine started with. You know, like as children. As a child, I was watching Sesame Street and I was categorizing one of these things as is the same. And one of these things is different. You know, I was, I was playing that game uh, and it's something that children do very well. Uh, Something that computers maybe don't do as well. Joel, your thoughts.
5: Yes, please. So I would like, uh, can you hear me properly? Yes. So I would uh, just like to uh, ask a favor, like just for clarification. So when we're trying to distinguish the difference between the one and the many and say ourselves and consciousness between AI, um, uh, what what exactly are we pointing to as uh, the difference per se? Because on one hand, the mistake that um, the algor- algorithms made on Google, um, even though that's an incorrect observation, um, like at one point, like uh, we can use the example of human history. At one point, that's what people in the past thought too. We've we've made that mistake as well, right? So, what exactly would be the difference, and why are we pointing to the algorithm that made the same mistake we essentially made too, right? So, um, how how are we how are we separating the one from the many from AI? Well done.
0: That's a great question. I like that. It's uh, and you know I, I I would ask everybody for their opinion on that. I mean my my thinking is that the difference is in our capacity to learn from our mistakes uh, and to evolve and maybe to use what J.K. called earlier is caring. Um, you know that ability that maybe um, you know we we haven't developed ability yet to program algorithms to care. And so because we care, we can learn from our experiences. I mean, that's just my take on it, um, but you know, anybody else who'd like to contribute a thought to that excellent question is more than welcome to. Steve, uh, welcome and uh, we'll go Steve, then Hari and then Bill, Steve.
6: Can you hear me okay? Yes. Um, well, I'd like to make two points, one on what Ron had said earlier about the uh, consciousness, that consciousness itself possibly could just be an illusion that, uh, you know, this organic machine or this living organism uses as a survival mechanism. Or just two different examples of, you know, the self being interpreted differently. There's this thing when people lose a limb they have the false limb pain where they still think they have a limb or say, well, like it when a very experienced race car driver, the car actually becomes a extension of the self that they can make adjustments, you know, quickly the same way we would do when we're walking. Uh, so that that might be a, uh, and, the, and the idea that uh, consciousness is a, uh, a connection that is, uh, you know, overriding. Uh, that could possibly could just be, you know, from the limited perspective to where we are right now, uh, where we evolved to, and you know, for you know, just the purpose of survival. And the other point on the learning, uh, I'm not an expert in computers, but I've read that uh, <clears throat> some neural network computers, like the one that uh, AlphaGo that Google created to uh, like Go, that it actually does that not by learning all the moves, which you know would have been impossible for a game of Go, but by learning, learning from its mistakes. So I think there is examples of uh, algorithms learning, and a lot of the, you know, again from my understanding, a lot of the the, the computers are that are used, the algorithms that are being used now are are neural nets that learn. And it's really teaching a computer to, an algorithm to learn from its own mistakes. And, you know, I think putting a limit on that is just based on, you know, us not, you know, having seen seen something, uh, you know, progress to the, a higher point. Uh, I don't think there's any necessary limitation that uh, uh, an algorithm couldn't evol- evolve itself to the point where. It could gain consciousness of its own self. Um, those were those were just a couple of points I had to add. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, and and uh, I like that idea that there, you know, there may be no limitation on on the way that computers can can learn, and I think that's that's probably where we need to uh, to go with our own development of uh, artificial intelligence um, is to build a system that that has no limitation to its ability to learn and that may be what they called uh, at one point good old fashioned AI, which is not AI that is based on just uh, feeding in as much data as possible. But AI that's actually has an ability to to think and create its own relations and doesn't depend on other people to tell it what the relations are, because one of these big problems now with with uh, machine learning is the the human biases that are fed into it. So, for example, facial rec- facial recognition software still has a very significant error rate in identifying uh, minorities. You know, th- th- it's good at identifying white uh, people because it's mostly programmed by white people. But you know, to identify minorities, it's it's there's still a lot of errors, and that's because our our own biases are being fed into it. And so, you know, as you said, Steve, you know, it's how do we create it so that, you know, it, it's free of those biases and therefore unlimited in its capacity to learn. And I think that's the challenge before us. And I think that's the place of philosophy in this whole question of, um, of artificial intelligence design. And I think that's where we really need to amplify the, the role of philosophy in these questions. They're very good questions and very good points. So thank you for that. And we'll move to Hari or Hari, if I got your name right.
7: Yeah, I'm Hari. Hari, okay. So I don't have the intellectual uh, mastery in this subject, but I'm just sharing my observation only. Uh, So regarding the artificial intelligence, what I think, what I see is it's already being used. Like for example, the uh, auto auto run car, And in the hospital, so many things have been already automated. Those are the smaller uh, scale of the AI. But it probably has a room to grow really, really far and very, very... So AI can be as imaginative as the people can logic. I think that's what I see. So, but one thing my fear about this AI especially is... AI itself is not bad, but the way the speed we are going uh, without uh, the process that helps it to to identify whether the AI that we are introducing will have no negative impacts in the society. I mean, or less impact in the society. I don't see that process in a place in this um, the IT world. What I see in the AI world is doing faster quick making more money and my fear is with this this fast everything quick everything and making more money yeah, all the time Probably, my fear is hopefully it will not lead us to some kind of disaster. Like in the weaponized world, we had the wars fighting, then we went to gun and we end up with a nuclear bomb. And now we don't know how to get rid of that and when it will be exploded with a madman hand. So that's my fear. But I think the AI itself has the huge potential. I don't know how far it can go because like, the car self-driving car is like amazing how can like this unimaginable things but so amazing thing it is but just like everything else we go extreme and this ai also i think i feel like sometime we are going to the extreme and there is no the process or mechanism in place that that analyze the impacts the ai will introduce i also see introducing those kind of process in place will curtail the innovation. I see that logic as well. So it's some kind of balance. I think some kind of overseeing mechanism needs to be placed to save the humanity. That's what I think. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for that observation. I think uh, you made some very good and interesting points there. You know, this idea uh, you know, first of imagination and how that's dealt with in the AI and then, you know, this idea of, you know, maybe ensuring that the speed of the process is such that it has the ability to apply some breaks if breaks are necessary uh, on, on things, you know, to avoid those negative consequences that you talked about. In fact, in that meetup yesterday that I attended on quantum computing that I mentioned a bit earlier, um, I asked the presenter. How their software, which is this compiling software that allows uh, the machine itself to build out its own code, once the once the human inputs the the constraints or the parameters, then the machine builds out its own code. And I asked, how do you know, or what what, cord- what sort of uh, controls are there to guard against unintended consequences? Because there's many things, and you use the example area of the um, self-driving cars. There's many examples in self-driving cars of of unintended consequences like for example i was reading something that you know if a white plastic bag uh, like a shopping bag um, happens to blow up in the air in front of the uh, camera of the car the car might think that that's snow and the, the car might then react differently than if it understood that it was a white plastic bag And so there's all of these sorts of unintended consequences and it's particularly difficult with ai because there's some very long-tailed consequences you know the the probability of something occurring could be one in a million or one in a billion and so you don't tend to think of that when you're programming it uh but then uh you know then these things happen you know in combination a lot more commonly than they happen individually And that's what's called the long tail problem. So, you know, it's a bit of this question of like, you know, the the butterfly effect. I think that that movie was out like a dozen years ago or something like that, you know. So you you get this little thing happening on one side of the world, like a butterfly flapping its wings. And it has all of these consequences that we couldn't possibly think about. And that's I think that's really part of this question of the one and the many understanding this ability to categorize things and to make sure that um, that we get it right. Or at least that there's some. Controls in the system, as you said that that will help to um, that will help to to stop it, you know, before it causes any uh, serious problems. So thank you for that. We'll go to Bill and then Jason. And then I'd like to do a reading starting from sixteen C. Um, so maybe we'll do that after Jason. So um, uh, Bill,
3: All right, you're on mute. There.
8: Yes, yeah, so I just wanted to say that from my perspective. The um, part of the mind is is like a computer, and I think uh, I think AI can eventually, theoretically, it could mimic the operation of the mind with enough with enough uh, sophistication. But there's another part of the mind that is beyond that. It's it's the uh, you can call it the soul or the consciousness, and um, you, you know a computer cannot 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 be the, an observer of itself. So, you know, when we make decisions, we make them on, on, based on logic. But then there's another part of us that, that oversees that, that evaluates it, that decides on whether this is a moral thing to do or it's appropriate, appropriate or it makes sense. And so it's, it's outside of the, outside of the mind outside of the rational part of the mind, maybe. And um, I don't know if uh, an AI can do that.
0: That is a really fascinating question. And, and you know, the the use of the term or the, the, the question whether the computer can observe itself, I think that's very critical, especially as we get into the realm of quantum computing, because the quantum realm has this, this characteristic of the observer principle. So once you observe something, you change it you change the quantum effect of of something and this is the these new computers are entangling with the quantum realm. And so we don't understand how that observer effect works in the quantum realm. Currently, we just understand that if you observe a process, the outcome changes compared to if you didn't observe the process. And that's very important, you know, this this question of observation. So as individual conscious individuals, we can observe ourselves But can the machine observe itself? Um, So very, very key question, I think. And and so thank you very much for that. Uh, We'll go to Jason, and then we'll do Joel, and then we'll do the reading. Jason, welcome.
9: Hello there. Uh, I have two questions. One is that, uh, uh, forgive me that I'm not expert in AI intelligence, but I was wondering, does AI uh, work in the way that uh, it requires external data input in order to process the interaction between environment and itself? Is that how it works? or?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's that's my understanding of how it works.
9: Okay, so yeah. basically you need to keep collecting data in order mm. to calculate the algorithm that can justify the action of the Uh, intelligence
0: yeah my understanding is that you know it takes in the data and then the algorithm tells it how to process the data in order to produce an output
9: okay so without reliable source of data AI will not be solely uh, depend on itself to uh, uh, to uh, you know to proclaim the right action Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that yeah and I think that's that's what we're talking about is this idea of the reliability of the data the uh, and the relevance of the data too. I think that the data have to be not just correct pieces of data but they have to be correctly classified
9: and yeah. that has to depend on the uh uh you know whatever uh environment, external environment uh input into the data uh, that will create this uh internal intelligence but mm-hmm my 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 I guess my next question is that um, uh, why does AI uh, technology industry today uh, set trajectory towards investing so much resources to develop or advance technology uh, that apart from the hum- investing in human capitals? And uh, it seems that uh, uh, we as humans solely depend on technology uh in one way uh you know one way uh, 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 uh process instead of a both ways reciprocal mm-hmm. so basically we as consumer we spend our consumption based on te- our requirement of technologies, and in return, we don't get as much as uh, reward or uh, feedback in terms mm-hmm. of information and uh uh knowledges. Hmm. Uh I mean it depends on personal preference because you know some people will search for knowledge. It's their choice to based on an internet platform or whatever social network platform. But a lot of technology just um uh build based on impulses and uh, it doesn't really uh educate you in the way that uh uh feeds you back with economic rewards hmm. rather than just extracting a lot of data and information from consumers and uh, uh, create this one-way, you know, uh, uh, one-way hierarchy structure. That is that, you know, consumer feedback to the technology company and technology company use data to create this artificial intelligence so they can build something and feedback to the consumer with the product. So consumer keep consuming. This is... Not, I don't think it's a fair play in many ways, and it's not even enhanced the growth of relationship. it just segregated the relationship in Mm -hmm. many ways.
0: That's, I mean, I think you've hit Jason on a very important point, you know, that relates probably to the economic model that we work under, but I think it's a very critical point. And the word that you used, reciprocity, I think is so key. Um, that we have to have reciprocity with our technology, and this was, you know, this is something that I have a particular interest in because uh, I I am particularly attracted to the philosophy of Ursula Franklin, who was a humanist and physicist and Holocaust survivor, and she uh, wrote and spoke about our use of technology. And technology, she said, can be either prescriptive; it can tell us what to do, or it can be holistic in 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 the in Holistic technology is one that has reciprocity so that if if a technological process is not working optimally or is not serving our needs, then we have the ability to change it. It's not prescribing what we need to do. We have the ability to change it. And I think that's the reciprocity that you're talking about. But it's probably a function of the economic model that uh, that, that reciprocity is not necessarily there all the time. But I think that's very critical and something I think that speaks very much to Philobus and Plato's other dialogues. Is this idea that you know, as we get more and more powerful with our technology, uh, we have to ensure that humans are still the focus of the of, of the process. So, thank you very much, and for that use of the word reciprocity, it just I think it really highlights a very key issue. Um, we'll go to Joel, and then we'll do the uh, the reading at sixteen C.
5: Uh, do you want to go ahead for the reading? Mine's a quick question. We can do it after the reading if we're pressed for time.
0: Yeah, no, you might as well go ahead, and then we'll do the reading after.
5: Okay. So, um, uh, my question is in terms of again, it's it's really fun trying to compare what we identify as consciousness towards ourselves versus AI, and um, and trying to split the difference between the two once again because. Um, I would like to ask is us saying a priori in advance, like uh, there are certain things that a computer or AI won't be able to do. Is that a a premature observation to make on behalf of AI considering when it even comes to our side of the fence, whether we're talking dualism, for example, whether the mind is somehow non-physical or separate from material, when we ourselves can't even fully wrap our heads around how consciousness works to begin with, is it fair to also assume on behalf of AI that it's like to to already invoke some sort of limitation? Since like, it, it, it's it premature to say, since we don't even understand how consciousness works to just assume, oh yeah, AI is not going to be able to pull it off either, right? Like, are, are we justified in making that assumption before we have all of the rev- uh, relevant Uh, information to begin with?
0: Good question. Uh, I don't have the answer. Uh, I would be inclined to hope that, um, that, you know, we can work in tandem with AI and, you know, if it becomes conscious, we can sort of, you know, there's that reciprocity that, uh, that Jason just spoke about, you know, that, that it, it works, but, you know, as you said, we don't even understand how our own mental processes work fully. And so how can we assume that uh, that AI won't achieve that same state? Uh, but I think the basis of it is that we are the ones who are developing the AI, although more and more we are seeding that development to the AI itself. You know, as I said, you know, with these quantum algorithm compilers, uh, we are allowing the machines to do a lot of their own programming. You know, it's still based on the parameters that we input, but, uh, you know, we've got to be very careful to make sure that we don't, you know, run into those unintended consequences uh you know that that we those are carefully controlled so it's a good question uh, and something that we we can definitely consider and others others are welcome to contribute to that um, to that response as well um so i just thought i, I would go to this reading uh, starting at 16c going to 17a uh and i don't know if i would have any volunteers to read this or i can read it um this is just talking about this idea of the unlimited versus the limited and the intermediates. And I think there's a line in here that just really resonated with that uh, Google gorilla picture that I showed a few minutes ago. Um, And so maybe I'll I'll just go ahead and read this then. So this is from the text. (laughs) It's starting at 16c. For everything in any field of art that has ever been discovered has come to light because of this, It is a gift of the gods to men, or so it seems to me, hurled down from heaven by some Prometheus, along with the most dazzling fire. And the people of old, superior to us and living in closer proximity to the gods, have bequeathed us this tale, that whatever is said to be consists of one and many, having in its nature limit and unlimitedness. Since this is the structure of things, we have to assume that there is in each case always one form for every one of them, and we must search for it, and we will indeed find it there. And once we have grasped it, we must look for two as the case would have it, or if not for three or for some other number. And we must treat every one of those further unities in the same way until it is not only established of the original unit that it is one, many and unlimited, but also how many kinds it is. For we must not grant the form of the unlimited to the plurality before we know the exact number of every, every, plurality that lies between the unlimited and the one. Only then is it permitted to release each kind of unity into the unlimited and let it go. The gods, as I, as I said, have left us this legacy of how to inquire and learn and teach one another. But nowadays, the clever ones among us make a one haphazardly and a many faster or slower than they should they go straight from one to the unlimited and omit the intermediates. It is these, however, that make all the difference as to whether we are engaged with each other in dialectical or only or only in heuristic discourse. Uh, and I, I thought, you know, particularly that line in, in there that says, for we must not grant the form of the unlimited to the plurality before we know the exact number of every plurality that lies between the unlimited and the one. I thought that line applied particularly to that error that, that the google image classification in 2015 made with the uh with the gorillas um and you know so i just wonder what people think about this particular section of the dialogue um you know there's there's a couple of things i would point out i guess you know the when when he says the one uh when socrates says the one there's a point at 15b uh that says one is that which allows neither generation nor destruction. So one is the one is the unlimited. One is the finality. There's no changing the one. There's no adding to it. There's no subtracting it. So the one is the final, you know, the 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 it's the enduring thing. Um, and when he says unlimitedness, um, I was thinking about you know the meaning of that. You know, the, you know the universe, as far as we know, is unlimited. Um, you know the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter, which is we we know as pi, is unlimited. Uh, so there are things that are unlimited. But I was thinking, you know, essentially maybe is is what he's talking about here in terms of unlimitedness, maybe meaning potential. Uh, and and then there's this wonderful idea. You know, he extol he, he extols this idea of this mix of the limited and the unlimited uh, as a gift from the gods. And I was thinking, you know, is that really, is that really true? You know, is it, is it in fact a, a good thing that we have in everything this kind of infinite potential of unlimit, uh, and also the the limits. Uh, and again, as I said in the introduction, I think this maybe ties to the Republic. You know, when we saw. Uh, and also to, to, to Timaeus that we did last season, you know, the, this idea that there is uh, in existence infinite being, which is in the past and the future, and uh, there is limits in the state of becoming, which is in the present. So, we have this combination of limits in the present and the lack of limits in the past and the future, and, and everything has this combination, and he says it's a gift to the gods. And So maybe it is it really, you know, is it it a question of, you know, does does that presence of the unlimit give us this infinite potential to explore and to discover?
3: Steve, what are your thoughts? Thank you.
6: When you were reading it, it made me think of uh, Zeno's paradox with the Achilles racing the rabbit and the – or the turtle, and the turtle is – the head start, but Achilles can only run halfway to the turtle before he runs another halfway in infinite. And so before we know the number of every polarity, which lies between the unlimited and the one that that really is an unlimited amount. You can always cut something in half again, half, a half, a half, half. And, um, second thought was that the unlimited is, uh, it's just the concept that, uh, can we can we really, um, you know, that there's an unlimited human potential, there's an unlimited universe that's concept there that very well might be a limited universe, you know, it's not something that we can uh determine scientifically, so it's like an un, um, a fact that we can never really uh have any security in knowing is is true, and is that um, can we only? Uh, function within the range. It's like the, uh, and we only function within the range of the limited. We, we can't, you know, the unlimited is a concept, but we can't really uh, function within the range of the unlimited, except in forming a limited concept of what the unlimited is. Thank you.
0: Like that limited concept of the unlimited. That's that's great use of uh, of words, I think there. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, actually, you mentioned Zeno's paradox, which is something that I, when we get to Parmenides in you know maybe about a month, uh, I wanted to talk about Zeno's paradox, and I think that's a, a good example of you know, and, and as you said, you know, this idea of being able to divide everything continuously in half, in half, in half. Um, you know, and and there is no limit, maybe, to how much we can divide in half. Uh, certainly, if we think about mathematics and the real line, uh, the real line is infinitely dense. Uh, and for every space that a particular number occupies in the real line, you can further there's a, there's an infinite recursion of that space into subdivisions of that number. Uh, so there's an example, maybe, of another example of the unlimitedness of something, um, but. Um, yeah, I think this uh limited understanding of the unlimited, I think, is a really interesting way of putting it. So thank you for that. Um we'll go to Jason and then JK.
9: Uh, actually I I I do my own research sometimes to uh to uh study about uh, social issues around uh my community as was well uh you know uh international communities. And I real there's something I realize that, uh, um, you know, like, I find that individual potential is unlimited. But why that someone is more excelled than others in different environments, it's especially why some communities emphasize on education and the growth more than other communities. Um, I, I I personally think that uh, uh, we as a society uh, have responsibility to uh, Nourish this environment for the growth of individual potentials, but why the way we operate society in the way that limits the individual potential is very precarious. Because uh, um, uh, you can argue, you can uh, argue that maybe it's because of social segregation, social inequality, gender inequality, all kinds of elements. But I just think that whereas society uh, trace back to the beginning. Why is that? We, we have such tribalism in our conscience that we always build a hierarchy society rather than society with the adversity. That's just, um, amazing. So, uh, uh, I mean, that also limits a lot of individual potentials in our society as well as community.
0: That's a good observation, and I think, you know, the this idea of these limits that seem to be put on individual potential, that may actually speak to some of the words in this particular reading that we just did. And I'm thinking the words uh, that, uh, again, for we must not grant the form of the unlimited to the plurality before we know the exact number of every plur- plurality that lies between the unlimited and the one. Uh, and I'm thinking that maybe some of these constraints that are put on people either by their tribal group or their society or the particular uh, learning that they've been brought up in uh, may be not taking into account that number of plurality that, you know, they're saying that this is the only way that it can be. Well, maybe that's not the only way that it can be. And before before we reach that unlimited state to say it's the only way that it can be, we need to look at all the different possibilities that lie between what is and what can be, you know, to to achieve that full potential. And so, um, I like the way that you you put that in a social context, and I think that that may speak to to the words that are in the section. So, thank you for that, uh, J.K. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I'm trying to understand what the uh, the meaning uh, of this um, idea of unlimited and limited. And that the one is the unlimited, but why couldn't you think of the um, the becoming, the plurality of the present as as the unlimited as well, in terms of you know plurality continuously occurring, you know, in the process of 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 time of change. Mm-hmm and so when the when the uh, when the state of becoming be more be more of the unlimited whereas if you think about the the uh the one and the unlimited as being as being the you know as being the true true uh unlimited um it's only it's that 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 isn't that a concept that you have about what the one is about what uh, what is you know, that being the one being unlimited, because how do you know what that one is? I mean, except by your own conception of what that is, whereas you experience the un, uh, unlimited of, of the state of becoming, uh, which is a constant plurality, the many, right? That arises from, from that uh, state of becoming and
3: change. Maybe that's a, just a different perspective of looking
2: at it. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I, I think I I understand what you're saying. You know, this this idea that the state of becoming there seems to be no limit to what can happen in the state of becoming is is that kind of what you're saying?
3: Yeah, that's a, It's the yeah. uh,
2: it's it's the I think it's the kind of uh, the uh, this dispute between Heraclitus and Parmenides. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, who uh, whose student was Zeno, right? We and came up with the Zeno's paradox of the uh, of, and the paradox is bec- you you assume that the that there is is one that is unlimited, and but it doesn't. Uh, it's as though it's taking time and spatializing time. It's uh, rather than accepting time as. As the more real, as you know, equally real with uh, with space, uh, it seems to be imposing a kind of a spatial dimension onto time. And in that sense, it ignores the 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 process of time of change. And uh, so you come up with this. He comes up with this paradox. But there it, it wouldn't be a paradox if he didn't do that, right? Because you you uh, y- y- he's assuming that the uh, that the one is the unlimited, and so it can be divided into infinite, uh, you know, tesimals, uh after each uh, right, uh, each halfway point.
0: I think I think the idea is that the one can no can not be further divided, and so then because it cannot be divided, it has no further limits. It's the divisions that are the the limits. That's my understanding of it. And I just you know the, there's. A couple of examples here that we can talk about that uh, uh, that Socrates brings into it, you know, first of all, there was the example that was used in the Republic, which I thought was pretty effective, and that was uh, where Socrates held up three fingers, as I'm doing now, and he says, you know, we know that these are fingers, so that there's a one form of these three things, they're fingers, but they have different properties, you know. Uh, Some figures can be wrinkly, some figures can be smooth, some figures can be short and stubby, some can be long, they can be different colours, different lengths, and all of that. So, you know, the the oneness is the finger, uh, or the form of the finger, whereas the many is the many types of divisions into which finger can be divided. Um, And then I think that there's some really effective examples in today's reading of the distinction between the one and the many at uh, 17, um, just looking yeah, 17 D to E and 18 C, Uh, you know, so 17 D to E, um, Socrates talks about, uh, for example, our spoken language. Um, And there's infinite range to the sounds that we can all produce, but there is one meaning for each of the sounds so that we understand each other, you know, because if you made if you made a, a vowel sound of an O, I understand what the O means. Uh, but you can make that sound in any different tone or range. And, and you know, I'll still understand what it means. I thought that was a particularly effective example at uh, 17 C. Uh, and then at 17 D, he talks about uh, music, you know, and understanding again, the differences in the pitch. Um, and the, the, the character and in the intervals of those, of those pitch in the, in the music, that, that gives rise to harmony, which we understand. Uh, but there are many intervals and many different uh, pitches and, and characteristics in that music. And so I thought those were particularly effective examples of the, the use of the one and the many. Um, but I don't know what others uh, think about that. We'll go to Ron and then Jane and Jason. Ron.
1: Uh, forgive me, uh, because I'm going to think out loud and, and please stop me when I've gone too long. But I'm trying to um, get a handle, so to speak, on the one and the many or the limited and the limitless. Mm-hmm. And um, the, uh, the many or the limited, uh, uh, I would call maybe uh, for communication purposes, Personal consciousness that you and I have, and that's very uh, limited because it has a beginning and an end, right? Uh, y- 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 you don't remember your beginning, but your parents told you you had a beginning, and you, at some point you will have an end when, when when that body will no longer be conscious, and that's personal consciousness, and that's limited. Um, Unlimited might be that uh, within the arising of that individual consciousness, there was something, again, for the sake of uh, communication and the limitations of language, let's call it um, uh, uh, cosmic consciousness or something like that, uh, which embraces all the individual consciousnesses. That might be the one, that might be the limitless, um and um to suppose that the limited the individual consciousness uh what we normally uh we operate with will be able to um encompass the the universal consciousness um it it seem it that
3: doesn't seem uh, uh possible,
1: but at the other hand the question is: uh, Have have we done a mistaken identity? And instead of identifying with the uh, unlimited uh, consciousness, have have we uh, mistakenly identified with the limited consciousness? And then, like um, having enclosed ourselves in this paper bag, so to speak, we're trying to punch our way out. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's you know. It's not a, It's not going to be a difference in quantity. It's going to be a difference in kind. Um, anyway, I said I was thinking out loud, and I know I can go on forever, but I think I better stop here.
0: <laughs> Those are great questions, Ron, and, and thank you for that. I think, you know, and, and it's, it's good that you call into question this idea or this distinction between uh, the unlimited and the limited. I think we have to recall here to, you know, the view of Plato and Socrates that the soul has no limit. Uh, And I think that's maybe one of the more contentious things in the history of philosophy. I think there's probably certain schools that think that the soul is limited to the life of the body, you know, so the soul inhabits the body and when the body dies, the soul dies with it. Uh, But I think, you know, in the Republic, he was very clear that that wasn't the case. I think we'll see when we look at Phaedo in our next uh, few episodes, uh, we'll see again that that's that's not the case, at least according to Socrates. So so the soul is something which has no limit. You use the term beginning and, and end, Ron, which I think is is key to understanding the the difference between limit and unlimited. So the unlimited would have no beginning and no end. um, And the limited would have beginning and end. So the physical body has a beginning and an end. And anything physical, in fact, has a beginning and an end. Um, So all of physics has a beginning and an end. Uh, But the thing that doesn't have a beginning beginning and an end, according to Socrates, would be the soul. and you know maybe the universe as well, as far as we know, has no beginning and no end. Um, you know, if we accept certain ideas about the origin of the universe, uh, so I think there's there's that kind of distinction. You know, the the, the idea of beginning versus end, or no beginning and no end—that uh, something just continually just goes round and around and around—and uh, that would be the unlimited. Uh, so. Um, And then I think you use the term cosmic consciousness and maybe that's the kind of context of, you know, something that may be unlimited uh, without beginning or, or end. So, so thank you for raising that. And and certainly we can explore that and get other people's uh, ideas on that question. Um, We'll go to Jane and then Jason.
3: Um, When I was reading uh, the dialogue, I, I had this reoccurring question of
9: whether the word the the one is being used in in two different definitions, so there's the one as a particular object as a singularity and the one which is a general a unity a plurality of the many and within the context of the the all of these Socratic dialogues, the one is something that is unlimited it is non-material it is the same it is a state of being and from what i understand the state of being even though it is non-material so it's 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 not within our material world it does encompass and and sort of shadow all the potential states of becoming which are actually limited um
3: i think yeah i'm I'm, i think i'm going to leave it at that thank you
0: Thank you for the question. The idea of is, is one, the unity or the combination, I think is what you're saying? Or is it a singularity um, that can't be divided? Uh, and so I think that's the, I think that's the question. I think the, you know, when the basic, the part that this dialogue starts with the question of, you know, whether the life of pleasure is better than the life of, uh, of knowledge And we'll see in the next reading that we'll go to. Actually, I'll just put it on the screen while we talk. um, What happens when they put that on trial? And they realize as they talk about this that uh, pleasure is one thing, but it has many different manifestations. Uh, Knowledge is one thing, but it has many different manifestations. Uh, And so maybe that's kind of maybe that helps to put in context your question, Jane, you know, this idea of. Uh, can the one be divided? Well, you know, can pleasure itself be divided? Or is there just different types of pleasure? So pleasure is still one thing, but it has many different ways of showing itself, some of which are true, and some of which are false, same with knowledge. Um, So maybe that's one way of thinking about it. Um, But we'll get others' uh, opinions on that too. Uh, Jason, your thoughts?
9: uh i was wondering um what, uh, Jane Jing mentioned uh, uh when she compared the one as uh uh unification of plurality that shadows um uh, the potential of individuals uh uh you know individuality um, i come to thoughts uh, i it made me think that uh uh in the religious concept, when Jesus is the one and uh we're created in the image of god so uh in that sense jesus what, w- whatever we think about jesus is uh is a perfect being and he reflects uh um in our daily lives the way we should be so uh the 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 society do, does society need to uh, uh, to promote this kind of uh, uh, ethical ethical concept of what a human should be in the moral sense in order to advance uh, uh, in polarity of many things. For example, like uh, cultural, technology, economic, and uh, Uh, Because ethic is a foundation of many things. Without ethic, people can neglect and they can can be selfish. So in the religion, Jesus is a moral being. So he's the foundation of the church. And uh, can society form this kind of foundation based on ethical principles?
0: It, so, as I understand the question, it's you know, is is can we look to this one being or this one concept, uh, and can we say that ethically that's what we should um, comply to? Um, you know, this this one principle. You know, if 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 you know, in the, in that example, is Jesus the first principle, maybe, and, and that's what we should comply to. Um, it's an interesting question, and certainly, you know, with ethics, I, I think that's you know, maybe. Plato and Socrates are more on the on the lines of justice that we talked about when we talked about the when we looked at the Republic, um, and uh, instead of prescribing what people should do based on our perception of something, because you know there's people who believe in Jesus and people who don't, and people say that he thought one thing and others say that he thought other things, and you know so we get into all this confusion and difference. Maybe it's this this sense of justice rather than prescriptive ethics that uh, that Socrates is more in favor of. Uh, But it's a good question. So um, you know, we'll we'll see what people think about that. Um, We'll go to Bill, and then J.K., and then Ron. Now,
3: this
8: question of of one and and multitude. Or the many, um, as I see it, you know. For example, let's take love. Love is one thing. However, it can be expressed in many different ways. So, but the but, you know, the question is: Is love the same? Is it is it the same in in, in every situation? Is the basic concept of love, love love the same, and the expression that is different? You know, that's that's something that. Uh, that uh, I've considered and um, I'd be happy to hear what other people think about that. It's, it's the expression that makes it into the into the many.
3: A a good uh,
0: question and thought there, the, the expression. And certainly, um, you know, I just, uh, I'd point out uh, at 15, 15 D to E. um, Socrates says, by making the point that it is through discourse that the same thing flits around, becoming one and many in all sorts of ways. So I think he's just saying what you just said, Bill, is that the, you know, it's the expression of it. It's, it's when I say what I think love is versus what you say love is versus what everybody else says, and each one of us is going to have a bit of a different concept, and that comes out in discourse. But then I think what he's saying is that in dialectic, which is where we go back to first principles, that's where we find the one. And I would just reemphasize again what I mentioned before at 15b to 16a, um, there's this line that, uh, you know, the one and the same admits neither of generation nor of destruction. So, it, it, you know, again, that idea that you cannot add to it generation or destruction you can't subtract from it you know it is what it like love will always be love but we have different concepts we have many different concepts of what it will be but the general category of love is will always be one uh, i think so if if that's maybe a way of addressing it you know one is kind of the boundary condition um, and, and, you know, it's, it's finding that boundary that, that is the challenge. And that's, that's in discourse, as you said, and, and as Socrates says at at, uh, 15E, um, we'll go to JK and then Ron.
2: Yeah. I assume that, uh, that he's, um, um, in his dialogue, he's identifying the, the, um, one with the intelligence, right? Reason and intelligence and the uh, pleasure and pain with, um, with the many, right. But he's also saying that they, they come together, you know, um, you know, that, uh, that a life, life is a combination of both. Right. And so you can't separate the one from the many, you can't separate, uh, you know, pleasure or from the, from uh, intelligence and t- intelligence from, from pleasure. And so, in a sense you know um our existence our you know uh being able to to be part of the procreative uh, evolutionary process really depends on the um on the pleasure principle right you know because you know if you think of yourself as a human being you you came into this world out of pleasure you know for life, you know, out of uh, out of the pleasure principle, I, I believe, right? And so it it does, you know. Uh, you do have to think of, you know, is the is the um, is is the uh, that pleasure principle um, <laughs> unlimited or is it limited? Um, and so it, I can, I'm just kind of raising this question, thinking out, thinking out loud, mm-hmm. and whether uh, which is more true and if you if you in, insist that the it's, it's not and that it's uh, intelligent the reason reason is really what uh, is the one what is the uh, what is unlimited and and that is that that sets the boundary then you're you're kind of like cutting yourself off from
3: from one's uh, history right one's evolutionary history so
2: i don't know if that's uh, that makes sense to you to anybody
0: Thanks for that. And, and um, yeah, it's certainly, and in this next reading that we'll do maybe after Ron uh, uh, is talks about this mixture of uh, of pleasure and knowledge in what they think is the best life. Um, and then there was this part here. So you mentioned, you know, is there limit to pleasure? And I just, you know, would call into attention 26 B or 26 C um, where Socrates says, is the goddess her the goddess herself, fair fair Philebus, who recognizes how excess and the overabundance of our wickedness allows for no limit in our pleasure and their fulf- and their fulfillment, and she therefore imposes law and order as a limit on them. And while you may complain that this ruins them, I by contrast, call it their salvation. So I think there he's saying that there is no limit to pleasure. Um, but we put limit on it uh, to save pleasure from its own destruction, um, and that is placed on it by reason, uh, and that's something that we can explore a bit more. Um, So we'll go to Ron, and then maybe we'll do this reading. Um, I don't know if I I could read Socrates, or if anybody else wants to read Socrates, if there's a a volunteer for Protarchus as well, we could do that. So, uh, Ron, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, again, uh, James, I'm just going to be thinking out loud, just for a minute or two, and then you will make some sense of what I've been thinking about. So um, Jesus, um, uh, is it, the, the statement is attributed to him, I and the Father are one. Jesus was just a name, but Jesus was the Christ consciousness, Jesus Christ. Christ consciousness. And Christ consciousness has often been associated with what I referred to before as cosmic consciousness, but a, a better term, I couldn't think of it at the moment, would be universal consciousness, because maybe cosmic consciousness has cosmic has a little woo-woo in it. Universal just means uni, it means one, one consciousness. So universal consciousness or Christ consciousness. Now I think um, in Western philosophy, there are basically, uh, not in philosophy worldwide, there are dualists and non dualists one way of categorizing it. And I think that Plato uh, was a non-dualist uh, in, in, um, and I think uh, Plotinus, Plotinus as a Neoplatonist made it even clearer that and by non-dual he was saying, ultimately, I believe that there's only the universal consciousness, the one which he labeled the good, and um, a modern uh, version of that would be uh, a physicist by the name of David Bohm, who uh, spoke about um, uh, the implicate order and the explicate order. The uh, implicate order was uh, the one and 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 the explicate was the many as it unfolded, but uh he called it infinite potential uh when one is connected to the implicate order or the universal consciousness or the Christ consciousness or the one and um and that's limitless, no beginning, no end, and the other is is dualism once you move from the one to the two. And then the many, um, there's there's no end to that um, uh, uh, sort of rabbit hole. Anyway, I'll stop there if you can make some sense of what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you. And, and, you know, I think that's uh, one of that, you know, that rabbit hole that you talked about. I think that's why Socrates is saying that we need to know the exact number of the intermediates between the one or between the uh, unlimited and the limited. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, you, you raised a number of in- interesting points, you know, this, this idea of universal um, and, you know, there's, I was actually having a discussion with Joel who's on here the other day, you know, is there one universe or a multiverse, you know, and I think this is one of the big questions in physics now, uh, you know, Plato was on record as saying that there is only one. Um, so, um, uh, you know that that's that's the thinking behind Socrates, but you know we we can differ on that. Uh, but at some point, you know, maybe there are some universals. You know, like with that example that I did with my fingers earlier, which Socrates did in the Republic. You know, there is that universal form of finger. So whatever many different types of finger there are, are uh, many characteristics. There is still the one form of the finger, and so you know I think that's that that maybe non-dualist idea. Um, and you mentioned. Um, so you mentioned the soul, and I would just, you know, call out uh, around 30, between 30 and 31 in the dialogue, there's this whole discussion about the soul and the source of the soul uh, being the universe. And so there is not just a soul in the individual, there's a soul in the universe. So that's that's part of the logic in this particular dialogue. And then you mentioned the good, um, which, you know, I've just got a little note at the top of this next reading in 20D. The good is defined as perfect and sufficient and that which everybody desires. Uh, Furthermore, in the Republic, the form of the good is defined as that which gives knowledge to the things known and the power to know to the knower. That was the definition of the good, the form of the good in the Republic. And so, you know, there's maybe some sort of universal concepts in the good that uh, that we can explore. So thank you for... For tying those different ideas together or bringing bringing those points up. Uh, J k?
2: Yeah, I just want to point out that um, you can also get the uh, lost in, in the rabbit hole of universals in which you uh, you know uh, uh, you, as a life, as a living being, you cut yourself off from that the living natural process and you impose certain you know orders. Of uh, standards of um, of good and and uh, otherwise in terms of good and evil, right? And so there are some modernists, more modernist philosophers who have criticized a whole history of getting lost in the uh, in the rabbit hole of uh, of rationalism uh, and and the rationalism of universals, and you deny deny yourself uh, uh, yourself uh, as being an individual yeah. or or you are deny yourself one's natural tendencies to uh, behave as a as a living being uh, in nature and so that's it could it could go either way so i think there is a, there's a, there's kind of a moderation uh, a point of um, that uh, you know he's making a uh, this dialogue is pointing out that life is a combination of both the pleasure principle and the uh, and 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 intelligence and reason the Apollonian and the Dionysian, as pointed out by, you know, some modern modernist philosophers and that uh, we can't deny, we are part of the natural process of the many. At the same time, you can also understand yourself as part of the universal one. Yeah, so it's not, uh, you know, you can't, you know, you, you, you don't wanna to go too far, you need the extreme, of course.
0: And, you know, and, and certainly, you know, that it is all about that combination and that mixture that I think that Socrates talks about here, that the difficulty of making that mixture is understanding the ratio of limit and unlimit that goes into that mixture of both. Uh, and so I think that's the key and you use the word rationalism of universals. And so I, I would take the root rational uh, ratio from that word rationalism uh, and There's actually discussion in this dialogue, if you look at, uh, uh, it's around uh, 25B, um, that says, you know, we have this problem with the unlimited is that we cannot divide it like there is no, as I said, in the introduction, you, you cannot say what the greatest is when you're talking about the unlimited, because there is no greatest, there is no least, there's no beginning, there's no end. So you, you cannot establish these these uh, absolute measures, and therefore, you're, you're left to deal with ratios. And so he talks about instead of saying, uh, the greatest, we when we're looking for the first principle of something, we look for less and more, we look for these relative terms. Uh, and that allows us to provide this ratio of this mixture. Um, so let's maybe just take a look at this, this section from 20E to 22A. Um, and. Do we have any volunteers for either role, Socrates or Protarchus? I could do Socrates if nobody else wants. Is there anybody volunteering for Protarchus? So I could do both.
2: Yeah, I could do Protarchus.
0: Okay. Thank you, JK. So, so this is from 20E to 22A. And again, this is having defined at 20D the good as perfect, sufficient, and that which is uh, hunted for or universally desired. Um, so Socrates starts. So let us put the life of pleasure and the life of knowledge on trial and reach some verdict by looking at them separately. Let there be neither any knowledge in a life of pleasure, nor any pleasure in that of knowledge. For if either of the two is good, then it must have no need of anything in addition. But if one, of the other, one or the other should turn out to be lacking anything, then this can definitely no longer be the real good we are looking for. How could it be? So, shall we then use you as our test case to try both of them? By all means. Would you find it acceptable to live your whole life in enjoyment of the greatest pleasures?
3: Why, certainly.
0: And would you see yourself in need of anything else if you had secured this altogether? In no way. But look, might you, not have, uh, might you not have some need of knowledge, intelligence, and calculation, or anything else that is related to them?
2: Also, if I had pleasure, I would have all in all.
3: And living like that, you could enjoy the greatest pleasures throughout your life? Why should I not?
0: Since you would not be in possession of either reason, memory, knowledge, or true opinion, must you not be in ignorance, first of all, about this very question, whether you were enjoying yourself or not, given that you were devoid of any kind of intelligence?
3: Necessarily.
0: Moreover, due to lack of memory, it would be impossible for you to remember that you ever enjoyed yourself and for any pleasure to to survive from from one moment to the next, since it would leave no memory. But not possessing right judgment, you would not realize that you are enjoying yourself even even while you do. And being unable to calculate, you could not figure out any pleasures for yourself. You would thus not live a human life, but the life of a mollusk or one of those creatures in in shells that live in the sea? Is this what would happen? Or can we think of any other consequences beside these?
3: Well, could we? But is this a a life worth choosing?
2: Socrates? This argument has left me absolutely speechless for the moment.
0: Even so, let us not give in to this weakness. Let us, in turn, rather inspect the life of reason.
2: What kind of life do you have in mind?
0: Whether any one of us would choose to live in possession of every kind of intelligence, reason, knowledge, and memory of all things, while having no part, neither large nor small, of pleasure or of pain, living in total insensitivity of anything of that kind.
2: To me, at least, neither of these two forms of life seems worthy of choice, nor would it be to anyone else, I presume.
0: What about a combination combination of both, Protarchus? A life that results from a mixture of the two.
2: You mean a mixture of pleasure with reason and intelligence?
0: Right. Those are the ingredients I mean.
2: Everybody would certainly prefer this life to either of the other two, without exception.
0: Well, thank you, JK, for helping with that reading. And you know, so this is the this is this kind of interesting. Scenario where they put the the pure the life of pure pleasure on trial against the life of pure knowledge, and they conclude that neither is preferable. You know pleasure is not preferable because you would never remember it if you had no knowledge, uh, and you wouldn't even understand what pleasure is, and then of course, not you know absolute knowledge would be just kind of maybe boring um, and pointless. Uh, and so, you know, they arrive at the conclusion that th- the both is is the best form of the good life. Um, so, your
3: thoughts on that, Bill?
8: I love how Plato uh, approaches the argument and develops it. It's it's it makes so much sense when he when he <laughs> when he speaks this way and writes it this way, um, and it you know it uh, it goes to the heart of the matter.
0: And yeah, certainly, Protarchus is, is kind of left speechless at one point, you know, and certainly, you know, ends up agreeing, you know, that the, the, he sees no option, you know, it's it's just sort of, it seems obvious the way the logic is being presented. Uh, Steve, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I have uh, a
6: problem with the way that the uh, argument is framed that uh, Socrates, you know, if you have, if you go in the first part where you have a life of pleasure, could you scroll back, do uh, you think a little sure. bit? Yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, you were, with the life of pleasure, He said making an assumption that he doesn't really make an argument for, uh, that you wouldn't be in possession of reason, memory, knowledge, or true opinions. Uh, you know, he doesn't make it, I don't see any, you know, argument that, you know, that would be the case. I mean, you could say that you have pleasure in knowledge, pleasure in intelligence, pleasure in calculations. It's like, you know, why, you know, why would somebody do all those in the first place? You know, the first person that, uh, you know, started. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there's no origin. But just, I don't really see that, you know, the one having pleasure precludes having the other. So. Mm-hmm see a fallacy in his argument but you know that's from my perspective so maybe it could be corrected
0: and thanks for raising that and i think i think what they're trying to do in this little trial is that they're trying to say let's look at one versus the other without mixing them at all so you know first we're going to look at pure pleasure and then we'll look at pure knowledge but we have to exclude when we when we put this on trial we have to exclude from pleasure any knowledge and we have to exclude from knowledge any pleasure so then you get this, this trial between these two pure, you know, they don't exist, of course, but these kind of idealized forms of pleasure versus knowledge. And then they then they realize that there has to be this mix. And I think this, what particularly struck me in this paragraph that's at the bottom of the page here is this idea that um, that if you had no knowledge, how would you know that you were enjoying yourself? Because you wouldn't know, because you have no knowledge. Uh, and that particularly struck myself. It struck, struck my sense of that and and, you know it makes me think of a lot of things that go on today that are supposed to be pleasurable um you know whether it's liking your friends comments on facebook or all of these things you know do you really have knowledge that that's pleasurable or are you just doing it because others say it's pleasurable you know that's kind of you know that's one question i guess that we always need to ask ourselves so i think that's what they're trying to do is just you know, to try to like it, it's unrealistic, but they're saying to put it on trial, you have to exclude one from the other. So you have to just look at exclusive pleasure and exclusive knowledge and then decide, you know, that clearly some mixture of the two is is required. Um,
3: Jake, I, I, yeah, oh, sorry,
6: good, Steve. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but it just it's, um, I mean, like what we're doing now, you could say is a pursuit of knowledge, but I find it pleasurable. You know, so I don't, I you know, I understand you're saying they separated the two, but I think, you know, in order to separate something and put it on trial, you know, if you were to say that, you know, something is A and, you know, that B, C, and D is not part of that, you know, you'd have to make some argument to say why it would be precluded. So that was all I had on that.
0: Right. Yeah, I I think, yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And and certainly, hopefully, we do derive both both pleasure and knowledge from participating in events like this. So Um, JK, your
2: thoughts? Yeah, I guess this is an interesting uh, argument, uh, you know, against hedonism, but also against uh, maybe asceticism, right? Like you said, because if you have uh, just interested in pure knowledge, it's it brings uh, to mind a, this kind of asceticism where you deny any kind of, um, you know, um, bodily, physical, um, e- enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's, um, so it is a kind of, uh, pretty powerful argument and, um, which is a little bit perhaps, uh, uh, different from some of his other arguments, uh, positing the forms and so forth. And, um, Somehow everything else is just a copy of the forms, and so they're not real. So somehow your your physical experiences in life are not real; and they're just copies of of these you know rational forms that are outside of us.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that you know. It, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure that a copy of something or a it's not that you could even copy a form because the form is one and on cannot be copied but it can be varied and I think that's that's what he's saying is that you know it's this variation in life that's that's important and and you know there's but as you say I mean is it you know is the should all pleasure be removed from life you know and I was just you know reading a headline for example in the news in the past week or two where you know in um in Afghanistan for example um uh, People are now not supposed to listen to music, you know. So apparently, all music is bad. Um, so, is it right to derive to deny people the pleasure of music, um, or is it just some music is bad and some music is okay? You know. But again, who's making that judgment? You know, it's it's in, when we get down. Maybe that's this rabbit hole that was referred to earlier. You know, when we get down into making these judgments.
2: Um, Jose, your thoughts? And, uh, oh, sorry. Also he's, uh, okay. he's also saying that, um, also simply saying that uh, there is no pleasure in in intelligence, intellectual activity, and that is not true because you, one does derive pleasure from intellectual pursuits, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you could also argue that it is a it is a kind of maybe a sublimation of of the pleasure principle, you know. The intellectual pursuits are, you
0: know. Yeah, I, I think Socrates is—he's not saying that there is no pleasure in in knowledge. I think he's just—you know—it's—it's it's again for the purpose of this trial. Right. Uh, they just—they—they they had to remove any combination of the two in order to put each on trial on its own. And then, once having put each on trial on its own, they realized that it's really impossible to. To, to not involve some combination of the two. Uh, exactly. so, so there is pleasure and knowledge. Uh, I, think sure. that's, I think that's what they're, they're saying, yeah. Oh, we'll go to Jose and then Ron.
4: Yeah, I was thinking if to follow this argument, maybe it's helpful to break down or unpack pleasure. Uh, and the way I see it, or the, initially, I would unpack it by saying, well, there's obviously physical pleasure. And I would, I would uh, say that maybe for physical pleasure like eating, like smelling uh, good food or drinking a good wine, I don't need the mind, so I will venture to say that I don't need the intelligence for that. However, there's the other type of pleasure that is mind driven, for instance. If you feel pleasure and are very happy because your children just uh, finished his or her degree at university, you feel pleasure. You feel gratification. But that wouldn't be possible without the mind. First of all, I mean, I as they say, I wouldn't have memory. I wouldn't understand what that was. So there are a lot of things that are pleasures of the mind that come through the mind. The other one, of course, is what I think one of you, JK, was saying is, there's pleasure in the finding truth in intellectual pursuits. Those are pleasures of the mind. And finally, as uh, what Aristotle—I don't know if it's Aristotle—but what some philosophers say is, in fact, if you keep hitting, I think it was Aristotle, if you keep hitting the mean, eventually you start to reach a state of constant pleasure. That is, it is mental. Because you now live in such a peace state, a peaceful state, because you can see truth in every situation. We will never get that, um, but it's a it's a path or a trajectory that makes sense. So that's all I would say. I mean, the, I don't know. Maybe Socrates would laugh at me, but that would be my simple argument. There are pleasures of the body and pleasures of the mind, mm-hmm. and of course, you cannot have pleasures of the mind if you don't have a mind or you don't have intelligence. That's all. Yep.
0: I think a, a very good point. And certainly uh, in the latter part of the uh, which we won't get to maybe until some future date, there is a lot of discussion about the different types of pleasures and the different ways of dividing pleasure. Um, and it, it's quite a complicated discussion. So I think we'll leave that to a future date. But I think here, um, we may not have time to get this particular reading but from 34a to, to c um you know just to pick up on this difference that you that you raised jose the pleasures of the body versus the pleasures of the mind um in 34a to c socrates talks about two different types of memory and so there's or two different types of memory and recollection so there's memory which is Which involves the body. So, there, you know, that for example would be the pleasures of the body, body give rise to memories in the body. And then he distinguishes that from recollection, which is what the soul does on its own without the body. And so that would maybe be an example of the pleasures of the mind, because the mind doesn't, isn't attached to the body. It's, it's separate from the body, has to be separate from the body because it's the observer of the body. Um, so you know, there's the pleasures of the mind, which that's what the soul recollects on its own without the body, and then there's the memory of the body. So the soul can use either uh memory or recollection, um, you know, in informing its meaning in, in, in applying reason. So I think that's that's a good way maybe of introducing this distinction between memory and recollection. Uh, based on the different types of, of pleasures, pleasures of the body versus pleasures of the mind. Um, we'll go to Ron.
3: Yeah, thank you,
1: James. Again, thinking out loud. Um, I think that Plato putting in the mouth of Socrates a uh, an example of what I was referring to earlier as duality when, when you set up like, um, different categories, in this case, you set up two, two separate categories, one called pleasure and another, uh, called, um, knowledge. And I think, um, what he's trying to, uh, uh, sort of bring, bring the listener of the dialogue toward is that when, when you are in this, uh, World of dualities. Um, the only resolution is going to be when you unify them. In you know, and he's taking you there gently by in, in by saying here, um, well, maybe we need both. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But what he's bringing, what he's moving the listener towards, is the unity. The what he calls the one that unifies all of the dualities. Uh, another word he uses is the good for that, that unity.
3: And um, I
1: think that um, because the the one, the unity is uh, ineffable, is not actually uh, uh, able to be uh, Captured by uh, language, all he can do is is lead you closer and closer toward that one that good that unity by showing you the ultimate uh futility of 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 duality of the many of of separating things um, and that um that's why I think, you know, Plato is is so close to uh, many forms of Eastern non-dual philosophy, where they take you from the many to the one. Um, and um, but you know, it has to be done uh, through through the vehicle of the mind, and the mind by its by its nature. It uh, can only operate in dualities, in binaries. Uh, the The mind is is a a limited instrument. It's a magnificent instrument, but it's limited to operating in dualities. It, 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 in uh, it can't operate in in the sense of eternal, infinite. Uh, it can only you know uh, uh, operate in 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 the in the limited, in the temporal, in the phenomenal not in the noumenal, so to speak. Um, so um, I think that uh, um, from Plato, you, you're not going to be able to write down a conclusion or even a definition of the good, but he's going to just take you there, intuitively bring you there closer and closer. And then you you yourself have to kind of make that that ultimate, uh, leap.
3: That's my that, yeah. that, that.
1: That's where I'll stop my thinking out loud for now. Yeah.
0: I, I no, I, I really like that. Uh, in, in in fact, I look forward to re-listening to what you just said when I listen to the recording of this episode because I think you really touched on so many important points that really call into um, into our understanding, particularly this little. Uh, this equation that I put at the top of the the next little bit of the reading uh, which is this idea of combining the unlimited and the limit with a cause and um, you know you talked about unifying the one and I think that really speaks to the idea of dialectic you know where it's it's not a question as I said in the introduction of looking to the greatest of something because when you're dealing with the unlimited you'll never find the greatest because there is no greatest. And so then we're dealing with these relative terms. And so, um, you know, at 25B, uh, Socrates says that, um, you know, what we have to look at is opposites and equals. Uh, So when when we can't determine what the greatest is or what the least is, we can know differences. We can sort out this duality, I think, as you said, by knowing what the opposites are and what the equals are
6: and and
0: then relating number to number and measure to measure so that that uh paragraph at 25b where socrates talks about this understanding of the opposites and equals and measure to measure and number to number i think is so critical to resolving those dualities that you spoke of and it's it's why i think in the republic socrates said that uh, the first order of knowledge for a philosopher is a number in calculation, and I think we'll see more of this when we talk about FIDO next time, because there's a lot of talk about the equal uh, in FIDO. And so I think that's that's very key to understanding these these qualifications when we can't when we're dealing with universals. Um, so I just wanted to because we've only got, got about five minutes left here, unfortunately, it's there's always so much good discussion. and. It, it never leaves enough time to cover everything that we want to cover. but uh, so I just wanted to raise or highlight this um, this last reading, which uh, folks can do on their own, maybe, but I'll just I'll just do the first reading here from twenty three C to D. Um, it's a short one where Socrates says, Let us make a division of everything that actually exists now in the universe into two kinds, or if this uh, or or if this seems preferable into three. We agreed earlier that the God had revealed a division of what is into the unlimited and the limit. Let us now take these as two of the kinds, while treating the one that results from the mixture of these two as our third kind. But I must look quite the fool with my distinctions in two kinds and enumerations. Tarkas says, what are you driving at? Socrates says that we seem to be in need of yet a fourth kind. Look at the cause of this combination of those two together and posit it as my fourth kind in addition to those three. And so that leads to this little equation that I put at the top of the page, coming to be, which is in the present. uh, This is Socrates' term for becoming or, or coming to be. This is what we do in the present. We never achieve a full state of being because that's eternal, but we're always coming to be in the present. So coming to be in the present equals the combination of unlimited and limit. So I put that in brackets, unlimited plus limit in brackets, and I said multiply by cause. Uh, So in this ordering of uh, functions uh, here, and this is what Socrates is saying that we do in our reason is we apply order to things. So first we take the unlimited, uh, so unlimited is one, and then limit is two, so the, the second thing that we look at is the limit. So we start by looking at the unlimited, then we look at the limit, then we look at the combination of the two, which is the third thing, which is that state of coming to be, and then we say, what is the cause of that? And the cause could be either pleasure or knowledge or the mixture of both. And that's really, this is really, I think, the powerful Um, way that Socrates says that we apply reason is knowing these four different components. Uh, So knowing the unlimited, the limit, um, the combination that results in the state of coming to be, which is in the present, uh, our state of becoming, and then we understand the cause. uh, And the cause could be either pleasure or knowledge uh, or the combination of both, which has caused us to go in that particular direction. Um, so I think that's that's kind of a, a very key theme that that they're kind of arriving at um, in this in this part of the dialogue. And so, I'm just wondering, is there any particular thoughts on that? Uh, you know that combination uh, and that particular ordering, and, and you know do we kind of understand this this idea of the ordering that that we do with our rational sense? You know we take that empirical data. And we apply a rational process of ordering to it to arrive at this kind of combination uh, of unlimited plus limit um, equals coming to be, um, and the cause being the the fourth element of of that mixture. So that's that's kind of you know the, those are kind of the three themes that that I wanted to present in this, and and uh, we'll just take some final comments, Ron.
1: Yes, James. Um, again, I think Plato is 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 taking you yet a step further toward the limitless. Uh, well, he he's leaving you now with a fourth fourth thing, which is the cause. But uh, you know, later I'm sure it'll be very easy for him to show that in order to uh, even accept the concept of cause and effect, one has to accept the time. The, the concept of time and, and, and linearity and beginnings and ends. And in other dialogues, he's going to completely demolish all, all, all of those kind of uh, dualities one by one, you know, over the course of, you know, all of, all of these dialogues. So again, he's very gently, you know, he's showing, he's bringing up all the ordinary ways that we try to conceptualize and quote, wrap our minds around reality or truth. And step by step, he's going to show you that uh, you can't wrap your mind around reality because reality is wrapped around your mind. But this is, you know, this is deep, deep Plato now.
0: And I, I love the way you said that you can't wrap reality around your mind because your mind is wrapped around reality. It's uh, you know one is one is chasing the other.
6: Well said. The other uh, way around.
0: Yeah. I think I yeah. think you missed, I think you
1: oh, I think you said it the wrong way. I wrote
0: it. I wrote it the wrong way. Yes.
1: Yeah. Right. You're right. Yeah. Right. So thank
0: you. And, and yeah, and, and you know this idea of time consisting of beginnings and ends, uh, but in the sequence, right? So there's cause right, and effect. Linear. Right. There's cause linear. and effect. And and actually, you know, in Critias, you know, he brings into the idea like is time actually uh, circular or cyclic? Uh, so it may not be linear, but we experience time maybe as linear, uh, from one cause to one effect, from the, the next cause to the next effect, like that. But uh, but it, it it's certainly a, an interesting way of putting it. Right, Pheno- for
1: Phenomenal, phenomenally, we experience time linearly, but. Uh, Roger Penrose is probably one of the most brilliant you know living physicists has has come out uh, just recently you know kind of with his his latest you know really you know really off the charts you know um theory basically saying that the universe itself is is just it's constantly repeating you know it's it's an eternal you know coming into being and going out of being of the universe itself And an infinite, you know, a sort of regress, so to speak. And I think that, you know, the the cutting-edge physicists with all all their latest thinking are coming closer and closer to, they're trying to wrap their mind around the uh, infinity, you know, the the, the Christ consciousness, the universal consciousness. And, uh, you know, they're coming up, to these limitations what's generally referred to today as the hard question of consciousness that the mind uh, the mind as we normally think of the mind as the brain as this you know very efficient computer but as we're now learning you know uh, much much more efficient you know uh, powerful computers than the brain can be you know uh, built yet Consciousness is something that is not—it's a—it's of a different kind, uh, and that's what you know. The hard question of consciousness is that will will the, the 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 mind as brain ever be able to wrap itself around consciousness? And I think I think you know personally, as an opinion that I I've I've reached is no. It's the only way, the only other way around is that consciousness uh, envelops all minds.
0: Interesting idea, and and certainly food for thought as we advance through Plato and we reflect even back on, you know, dialogues like Timaeus where, you know, clearly the construction of the universe was the construction of a physical universe, but also the construction of an intelligent universe and so you can't separate one from the other. And so certainly bringing Roger Penrose into that into that was uh, was interesting. So thank you for that, Ron. And and um, we'll go to J.K. maybe for final comments, and then we'll uh, then we'll we're at the point where we have to wrap up.
2: Yeah, I guess the uh, the ultimate question is the the what is the cause, right? The cause is the um, is either, you know, he says it's either the, uh, the you know pleasure or intelligence. Or structure, or um, or feeling, you know, and uh, maybe it's a combination of both. And um, and there's also the element of uh, indeterminism, right? Uh, the chance, the element, of randomness that may, might play a role there too. And uh, it is a a kind of a, perhaps a eternal recurrence of, of of the of the same or the difference, right? Um, Maybe uh, a multiplicity of uh, of, um, of of the same and difference. Perhaps I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting um, question. Yeah.
0: No, and, and and a good thought I think to to conclude on. You know, what is the cause of everything? You know, and where does reason reside in that? And uh, And how do we continually deal with that multiplicity of the same and different, uh, as you as you called it, you know, I think that's that's something that's, um, you know, I I hope we can arrive at some conclusions on that this season, you know, especially maybe when we get to Parmenides, which is, I think there's some important things that are embedded in that dialogue. And so we'll look at Parmenides, I think, in about a month. but I think that's you know good introduction to the Fido, which I think we'll spend our next two sessions on. Uh, so I'll post the 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 part where we'll stop at in two weeks, and then we'll we'll do the rest of it the following session. Um, you know, and the Fido certainly is all about the soul, and I think you know that is the seat of intelligence and uh, uh, something that we need to bring into this whole construct. I think the physical universe is becoming very well understood. Uh, but, you know, we've talked a lot today about consciousness and the ability of conscious uh, individuals to see patterns and to understand um, the same and the different um, and to make sense of that and to, to take the empirical data and apply a rational process to arrive at meaning from that. And then to use memory and recollection to continue that process continuous meaning process of meaning to to derive um you know both pleasure and knowledge in life so it's been a great discussion today um you know i've learned a lot and and there's been some very interesting you know combinations of words and phrases that have uh, that have made me think so um I wanted to thank everybody for participating today. Um, Great to have some new people on board here today as well, and and we hope to see you back again. Um, So we will resume in two weeks. Uh, We will look at the FIDO. And uh, so we'll end the recording um, now. And um, those who want are welcome to stay online uh, for an unrecorded session in which we will uh, just have a casual discussion um, and uh, look forward to seeing everybody again for a recorded session in two weeks. So thank you very much.